Look in, uh, look in Matthew chapter 8, if you will. We'll go ahead and start with our Bibles. The snow was just barely gone, and you didn't look like you were confident it was going to stay gone. In uh, 1975, when Gene and I were born again, it's been the easiest Christian walk you could imagine. It was so simple. We just fell down the hill, kind of, and it just all got better. But <laughs> No, it wasn't that easy. In 1975, we were born again. We were immediately uh, connected uh, supernaturally with, with our our spot in the movement that we now call the Word of Faith. I'm not sure what we called it in 1975. We just called it church, I think, called it the Bible. And it didn't take long to find out that uh, where we tended to go crosswise with most denominational mindsets was in Isaiah chapter 53, where the Scripture talks about himself bearing our infirmities, and by his stripes we are healed. So there were lots of religious connotations to that, and as it turns out, I think that they're not just religious. I think they are true, but on one end of the spectrum, you've got, you've got most of the church, I mean like millions of believers who believe that I, that scripture means, that portion of the scripture means that Jesus bore our spiritual infirmities, and by his stripes we are healed, and it has absolutely nothing at all to do with whether we stay healthy and stay, stay lively or not. That's just sort of a secondary issue. Then in our group, we have the firm conviction that that is talking specifically about our physical healing. But as the story develops, of course, in the Scripture, you see that it's really both. And that in point of fact, you can't get healed and stay healed if you're not made right, made whole spiritually. There's a lot of different things that could be said right now, but we all are aware that we carry within us a spirit of life that gives life to our flesh, that is constantly at war with our flesh, with our minds trying to tell us that we're weak, that we're poor, as Pastor Brown is so, so aptly said about the spirit of poverty. You know, you learn things you don't know you're learning when you're a child. They cut grooves, so to speak, into your brain, and they wire the pieces back together so that if you just had a certain kind of traumatic event or you grow up thinking you were poor, short of the power of Jesus Christ touching your brain, touching your mind, not just your mind, but your brain and rewiring that thing, you could spend all of your life fighting against the poverty spirit. You could spend all of your life fighting against a fear of disease, a fear of inferiority, a sense of rejection. I see a lot of believers. I know a lot of believers. I might be in the same category myself, to be candid with you, that have latched on to the Word of God, hoped against hoped that it could be true, that we could be healed, that we could be delivered, that our marriages could be restored, that we could have more money than we had month, that our business ideas could come to pass. But I see thousands of believers from my little share of the world who are still out of one side of their mouth saying and confessing 
what the Word says, what they hope to be true, but in the other side of their mouth, not, not confessing they're broken and poor and devastated, but expressing the reality, the physical reality that they live in, that somehow this great potential for redemption and salvation that we all see in the Scripture uh, is, is not adequately portrayed in most of our lives most of the time. Somebody's got a baby. Well, that baby's microphone works. Why, how'd that happen? <laughs> now, some of you are way younger than I am, and you might not have had the 35, 40 years of Christian experience that I've got. Some of you maybe have been Christians as long as I have, and I don't want to sound like I'm just an old fellow talking about the way the world used to be. Forgive me if it sounds that way, but you, 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 might, not, you might not think in your youth in your middle years, that it's that way. But if you look around, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of broken hopes. There's a lot of broken dreams. There's a lot of despair about what could have been, about what should have been, that somehow just never quite made it. And we, in our group particularly, are prone to blame everything that doesn't work out right on the devil. The other end of the spectrum, they might blame it on God. But we're quick to blame it on the devil, but there's some middle ground. And the middle ground is not just time and chance. It's not just other people and their wills. It's that programmed soul that you carry around. It's your value system. It's your belief system that, uh, that keeps. It's your damaged, wounded soul that you've yet to let the Word of God penetrate that causes you to walk through life not ever really feeling like Life's going to be like you want it to be. So tonight, we're, we're, going to, we're going to look at that portion of Scripture. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53, and I'm going to try and link three different thoughts together for you about your soul, uh, about your griefs and sorrows, and about your pains and your infirmities. And I'm going to tell you, this is, this is the point, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that it is, it is in the griefs and sorrows that are not assigned to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your sicknesses and pains and distresses in life have their root. And that until the griefs and the sorrows, the disappointments, the, uh, and, and by this we're going to specifically mean those griefs and sorrows, because I'm sure if you trace it back far enough, every grief and sorrow you've got is rooted in some kind of transgression or iniquity, either yours or somebody else's. That every pain you've got, every sense of failure and dejection you've got is rooted in somebody not doing the right thing by the Word of God and being who they're supposed to be and speaking what they're supposed to speak. And so the impact that has when they call you a bad name like they shouldn't call you is that it traumatizes you and makes you feel inferior, makes you have a sense of rejection. It wounds your heart. Spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear it. I guess what I've really come to realize is that you can't go through life and not have a wounded spirit. So until you know how to deal with that wounded spirit, until you are successful at dealing with that wounded spirit, you are an opportunity for destruction walking down the street. You are a wounded individual that can easily, in many respects easily, be 
overwhelmed by the darkness, the forces of darkness, sickness, deceit, rejection, whatever it might be, and you've got to know how to deal with it. You've got to know how to not be sorry. Well, wasn't church good tonight? Time to go home. You've got to know how not to be sorry. You got, sorrowful, full of sorrow. You've got to know how to fix it so that when you go through life, it, whether you're 65, 55, 25, you don't look at your past and be filled with regrets and disappointment. And some of you are painfully aware that to turn around and look at your past, what you're going to see is a lot of hurt, a lot of rejection, a lot of disappointment. But let's face it, you're all saved, right? But you only got saved because something happened so that you knew you weren't saved. So you don't get saved because you're a nice person looking for something better. You get saved because you realize that there's bad things that happen in the world to good people and someone's done wrong to you and you've done wrong to somebody else and it doesn't seem to have any answer. Then someone comes along and tells you what the gospel is, and all of a sudden it falls into place. It makes sense. There's salvation for wounded, broken people like me and you. Except that when you step into the kingdom, when you step in through the door of salvation, your spirit's born again, but you're bringing the same twisted, sometimes even perverse thinking with you. Now, perverse, I'm not trying to make it mean necessarily wicked and dirty in the sexual sense, but anything that disagrees with God's word is perverse. It's twisted. So no matter what good intentions you've got, if you've succumbed to a spirit of poverty, it's still perverted. Still twisted. So we'll start with these scriptures. We'll move over to the Old Testament in a second. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. Matthew 8, verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. This is the ESV. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we can see in that verse right there that there is a very physical truth there. That like when it says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, he's not saying he took anybody's pain, griefs, and sorrows in this verse. He's saying that he fixed them up physically, right? But if you go back and read Isaiah chapter 53, uh, it says that, but it says that further on down the chapter. This, that's not the main point out of Isaiah chapter 53. It's almost just an add-on. So, Look over in Second Peter or First Peter chapter two, and we'll get started in earnest. Over here in First Peter chapter two, Peter elaborates on the thought a little bit. I read that portion out of Matthew chapter eight. Because I wanted you to see that Peter was there in the house and that this had a very personal impact on him. So whatever else happened in the ministry of Jesus, this would have been a big deal in Peter's life because he was very uniquely and personally touched by the healing ministry of Jesus. 
But it wasn't just a fly-by-night thought. Because Peter brings the same thought up over here in this verse we're going to read over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Except he puts a whole lot more into it, but he brings up the same verse. And I want you to be aware that probably 35 years or so in that neighborhood, 25, 35, have transpired since the event in his house with his mother-in-law and the time that he is writing this. So I want you to see that healing was obviously very important to the Apostle Peter, but that the truth that came out in Matthew chapter 8 is extremely important to him in his belief system. So that not just healing does he touch on in this portion of Scripture, he touches on a lot of deep issues that you and I need to know and you and I need to understand so we can walk in life and not just get healed over and over again. I think it's a wonderful thing for people to get healed. I think it's better for them not to need to be healed. I think it's a wonderful thing for God to demonstrate his miraculous power and restore I think it's better for something not to be broken and devastated. And I think that at some point, we need to ask ourselves some questions about why we keep having to come back to the trough and get repaired and why we can't stay repaired, why we can't be restored and live in that state of restoration. So that's just a free thought there. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body. Now, a while ago, it said he bore our infirmities. But this says he bore our sins. So this is a little bit of a deeper issue. He's, Peter's recognized that there is a connection between those illnesses and infirmities being born and the sins of humanity being born. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He says, by his wounds or by his stripes, you have been healed. For, verse 25, starts off with the word for, so it means that the two thoughts are connected. So he says, for, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer or the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Now there's some great stuff in this verse that it tells us, it, it, it tells us once and for all that there is some kind of link Maybe not a personal direct link every time, but there's some kind of link between sin and sickness. It doesn't mean that every time you get sick, you've sinned. But then on the other hand, I've never known someone who got sick that you couldn't say to them, have you sinned? And they would have to honestly say yes. What did you do? I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure I did something because I do something wrong every day. The trouble with this is that if you're not careful, you'll go through life and every time something goes bad, something goes wrong, you get sick. You try to look for what you've done wrong. And let me tell you something about the sin consciousness. It will never be satisfied. If there's something wrong in your life and you, and you forever say that what my life is today is because of what I've done wrong yesterday, I can guarantee you you'll find something that you've done wrong. Whether your sickness, whether your rejection, whether your bad portion of life is rooted in what happened yesterday or not, it's a whole other question. But if you deceive yourself into thinking that whatever this is, then you walk the next day and you say, if I just can live perfectly, then I'll be healthy and I'll have money and everything will go well. And that's not going to happen because you can't ever live perfectly. So you need to understand that the grace of God, that the power of God is bigger than your perfect lifestyle. 
if you've done something wrong, that has in fact opened up the door for the devil in your life. He will make it plain and clear to you. Don't trouble him with the questions. Don't sit around and contemplate or you will make something up. The devil will see to it that you have a lie to believe. Other than that, stand in faith, live under righteousness because you're dead to sin. You're not just dead to sickness now. You're dead to sin so that you can live under righteousness. But it implies that living under righteousness leads you to a place of health. So what we've got here is there's a connection between, between sin and unrighteousness and sickness. There is a connection in these verses between health, righteousness, and your soul. So if you look, if you look at these verses, and this is what the ESV said. It says, verse 24, he bore our sins. So there's the word sin, that we might die to sins. And it says in the last, the last word in verse 24 of this version is the word healed. So there's sin, there's health. And then down here it says, for you now return to the shepherd and the bishop. The last word of the verse is souls. So there's a connection there between what goes on in your soul and what goes on in your body. There's a connection between what goes on in your soul and what goes on in your life. There is a connection between what goes on in your soul and what goes on in your marriage. There's a connection between what goes on in your, in your soul and what goes on in your job. There's a connection between what goes on in your soul and what goes on with your, with your Christian relationships. There is an irrevocable, undeniable connection to everything in your life with what's going on in your soul. And if what's going on in your soul is not connected to the work of Christ and to the righteousness of God, you cannot help but get off track. Now, I know this probably seems tedious, but this is, this is in fact very, very important because the truth is, at the end of the day, if you can't get yourself fixed and cleaned on the inside, you can't live a victorious Christian life in a sustained way. Did you ever notice in Galatians chapter 4 when Paul is pleading with the Galatians to, to resist the Judaizers, to resist the people causing them problems, when he's pleading with them to submit to himself, to, to obey what the Word of God said, to accept the gospel for what it is, that he does not come along to them in chapter 4 and say to them, I'm going to pray against those forces that are hampering you. He doesn't say, I'm going to pray against the circumstances that are wrong in your life. He doesn't say any of that. He says, what I'm going to pray for is that Christ be formed in you. Because Christ being formed in you, which in fact changes the way you think, changes the way you see life, it changes the way you see your marriage. It changes the way you see your body. It changes the way you see your future. It changes the way you see your money. It changes every aspect of your life. Christ being formed in you causes you to wake up and come alive so you can look around and say, oh, these people are lying to me. Why would I want to be friends with people that would lie to me? I don't have to have the devil go away. I'll just go away from them. This is not a matter where you have to take authority over the devil. It's a place where you have to wake up and see what the truth is. That starts out with Christ coming together in your heart, in your life, in your brain, making your brain work so you don't go through life secretly attracted and addicted to the lies you've believed all your life about how you were doomed to be a failure and how 
your teachers and your parents and your husbands and your kids, your employees and your employers told you there was something wrong with you. You just weren't quite good enough. That stuff gets in you, and though you might hate it, if you heard it enough, you still believe it. Most, most of the people I know don't have a problem with uh, a fear of failure. I think I personally know more Christians that, that I work with, ones I intimately know, that have a greater fear of success than they have of failure because they've been told all their life they're not worthy of being successful. So over and over, I've watched them. I've watched preachers do it. People who could preach better than me, who knew better than I did from the Word of God, I've watched them sabotage their life so they could not succeed. I don't know if preachers do it, you do it. You fixed it so that you couldn't, you couldn't have something that you didn't think you were worthy of having, or God forbid you should get into a position that was ahead of the rest of the pack because you might stumble, then everybody would know that you were really a fake. There's stuff that goes on in our heads that's got to come into direct contact, direct violent contact with the Word of God through a surrendered heart, through a surrendered life, or we will never live up to remotely the potential that we have in Christ. And you know what? On the surface, we'd all say we want that. But this will scare the soup out of you. Because to have that, to have that, you've got to be willing to face the innermost secrets of your heart. You've got to be willing to change your mind about the most fundamental values and perspectives you have, about the very things you don't want to change your mind about. Everybody wants to change their mind about something that's causing them trouble. If they can see it, it's easy to do. Nobody wants to change their mind about a truth they hold dear, even if they don't like the truth, but they hold it close about who they are, where they're going, or who they're supposed to be married to, or et cetera, et cetera. So, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Let's, let's start with 52. We'll just end up with uh, verse 15. We'll start there. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and what, that which they have never heard they understand. Now he's going to go into something that you couldn't understand and know by seeing or understand by hearing. The only way you can understand some things is by revelation. So he says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. This is saying that Jesus, for every practical purpose, just looked like anybody else coming onto the planet, and that he just seemed to grow up in a dry and a barren place. In that respect, he wouldn't have appeared in that sense any differently than we did. Verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men. Of course he was. He didn't go to school. How could he know these things? He didn't come up through the same system that the Pharisees and the lawyers did. He was on the outside. He wasn't anything special. He wasn't in the denomination. He was an outsider. What he learned, he learned in his own spiritual time. He learned in his own spiritual walk. He didn't learn it because... He went to the higher universities, like you all did. He didn't go to Oxford. He didn't go to a big church. He lived in a small town that would have had, I'm sure, a comparatively small synagogue. He, uh, he wasn't anything special. So in this respect, he's just like you. He had everyday clothes. He was an everyday person. He was a guy just like you. There was nothing special about him. But in the same sense that he appeared to not be special, Though you appear not to be special, you have the same calling, the same grace, the same workings on the inside of you that he did. The same greatness lives in you that lived in him. So don't let your everyday appearance deceive you. Don't let your everyday clothes, don't let your everyday thoughts, don't let your everyday drab, dreary life make you think that you're anything less than spectacular. Because you are, in fact, the inheritors of who he was and all he had. You are, in fact, his legitimate government here on the earth. In whatever sphere he's called you to govern in, whatever sphere he's placed you in, to express his character, to express his love, to express his nature. And for you to live below that, you've got to judge yourself by what you see. You know what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we don't judge any man after the flesh. We previously judged Christ after the flesh, but now we judge him no more after the flesh, and we don't judge any man after the flesh. And judging any man after the flesh has, has got as much to do with you judging you after the flesh as it does anybody else. If you judge you after the flesh, you're in fact judging Christ after the flesh. If you're judging your brothers and sisters after the flesh, and that's not hard to do in a church where everybody knows each other. It's easy to get to know the human personality you think. You can so diminish the work of Christ through your human relationships, both on that side and on this side, that you completely miss the greatness that God wants to accomplish in you and through you. So don't do that. No, no, no. Resist it. Fight it. It says, Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Okay, in verse 4, it says in this translation, Surely he has borne our griefs. But down below in my Bible, there is a footnote that says that the word grief is the word sickness. Surely he has borne our griefs, 
Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our sorrows. Again, there's another footnote that says carried our pains. So you could translate these words either way and still be right. In fact, some of you got Bibles that say the opposite. But one day reading the scripture, I realized that the reason these words are so interchangeable is because the thoughts are interchangeable and that my grief is connected to my sickness and that my sorrow is connected to my pain. And it says that he was wounded for my transgressions, for my steps over the line, for the things I've done wrong, and for my iniquities, and by his stripes I am healed. So there's, there's a place where if I'm going to walk free of my past, if I'm going to walk free of my natural infirmities, I've got to be able to not just expect him to come along and scoop my headache off of me or cause my body to suddenly grow younger and stronger and better, that if I want to continue on for the work of God and live out my term and do all that he's called me to do, that somehow it's going to be important for me to void those griefs and sorrows out of my heart. That I'm going to have to get rid of those things as well. Because he didn't just bear my infirmities and my sickness. He bore my grief and my sorrow as well. And there's a reason for that. Now we'll go through life and we'll very painstakingly, no pun intended, assign our physical ailments over to the cross of Christ and say, by his stripes I am healed. But we'll, on the same day, walk through life brokenhearted over something someone said, something someone's done, something we've said, something we've done, and never even have it occur to us that we have to assign that pain that inner pain, to the work of Christ ourselves. So we'll go through life over the course of a lifetime, fighting symptoms, fighting circumstances, fighting the pains and the disappointments that lodge themselves in our flesh, but we'll carry as an ever-increasing weight, a bag of rocks, if you will, all the days of our life, the abuse that we suffered when we were six years old, the rejection that we suffered from our first boyfriend or girlfriend, the shame that we suffered, the guilt that we felt like we should suffer for the things that we've done wrong. And, you know, Christians are pretty bad about this. Because all of us feel like, even the mistakes that we've made, are the things that define us. And that we can't really, we can't really deny those things without looking like we're trying not to take responsibility for our life. But you can't get healed. You won't stay healthy if you go through life feeling guilty about having sex with somebody in the sixth grade. You, you, won't, you, won't, you won't stay healthy if you walk through life aware that you committed adultery and you've never dealt with it, and you probably would need to deal with it. But you can't get healed and stay healed by fighting off the symptoms that come in your flesh, that if every time you think of something you've done wrong, you're so ashamed, yet you never outwardly express it and get help from the people you need to, or never surrender it to God. 
transgressions and iniquities. Transgressions are perhaps the things that you do wrong. Maybe you didn't even do them accidentally, but maybe you, maybe you knew you shouldn't do it, but you did it anyway. But all of us, all of us step over the mark. But iniquity is a whole little bit of a different thought. Iniquity is a bend. It's kind of the thing that you can't stop doing even if you wanted to stop. You might not even know you're doing something wrong. It's a place where you don't really have any control of yourself. In those areas, we've got to surrender them to him. We've got to say, you've borne my iniquities. You've borne my transgressions. You've borne Gene's iniquities and Gene's transgressions. And it's easy for me to say because we're, we're, we're family here, so we're both Christians. But you might, have, you might have been the recipient of somebody else's sin. You might have been the beneficiary of somebody else's iniquity. You might have been on the wrong side of it. So maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but you got hurt by something somebody else did. Is this making any sense at all? You got hurt, you were betrayed, you were violated, you were rejected. Those things leave a mark in your heart that if you don't surrender your right to those offenses, those disappointments, those betrayals, if you don't surrender your right, if you don't surrender your responsibility, if you don't let him take the sins and transgressions, the grief and the sorrow, then I can guarantee you that the pain and sickness will probably come calling someday. Is that a bad thing for a word of faith guy to say? Well, things do come calling. Lack comes calling. Rejection comes calling. Sickness comes calling. They come to visit you and see if they can find anything in you that would give them entrance into your life so they can stay. And you have to have your heart and your soul clean and wired tight with the Word of God so they can find no root in you. The evil one's coming, Jesus said, but he has nothing in me. If he were to come see me tonight, walk through the door. Now, you can't come through that door because that's the pastor's door. Walk through the door because that's the church person's door. Well, we all go in and out. The sheep go in and out. If he were to walk through the door and present himself to me, what he would try and find was someplace to latch on to my fear, to my bitterness, to my pain, to my disappointment, to my confusion. He would try and find someplace to latch on to what I had done in the past or what somebody had done to me or something I had not dealt with because in that he's found something in me. He's found something in me that he can begin to manipulate and control my life with. Look over towards the middle part of the chapter here, last part, I guess, verse 10. I've heard Tracy Harris here in this place do a masterful job with this verse. He says, Scripture says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Margin of my Bible says he has made him sick. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The margin of my Bible where it says when his soul makes an offering for guilt, it says here, when you make his soul an offering for guilt. And as Tracy quoted the Amplified Bible, I can't quite quote it, but I can paraphrase it. It says, 
And when you and he make his soul an offering for your sin and guilt. The Amplified Not to Be Outdone puts both meanings together. It says when he's made his offering for guilt, you have to make your offering for guilt too. You have to say he died for my griefs and my sorrows. He died for my broken heart. He died for my disappointment. He died so I wouldn't have to suffer the rejection of being told I was stupid, weak, or wrong all my life. He died because I wasn't pretty and people said I was ugly. He died because I was somehow imperfect and people mocked my infirmities and weaknesses. He died, and I have to say, you know what? You just didn't bear my sins in some academic sense. You bore the things that struck the deepest into my heart and soul and that have caused me to live life as a broken human being. Because after all, as born-again, spirit-filled believers, what legitimate right do you have to live a broken life? Where's your authority to go through life, limping through life, carrying your wounds and carrying your pains, carrying your grief and carrying your sorrow, carrying your guilt, carrying your shame, carrying your unanswered questions that have caused you to stumble? Because there are some things you're not going to figure out. And if there's no clear way to figure them out, you've just got to accept the fact that they're over your pay grade. You, just, you don't need to know it. You don't need to know it. Because well-meaning good people die young every day. Lovely human beings that serve the Lord go bankrupt. Great Christians can't seem to figure out what to do to fix their marriage. Christians go on the treadmill of life working harder, trying more, working longer, oftentimes never understanding that it's the brokenness in their own soul that keeps causing them to trip, stumble, and fall. You have to be able to say, I'm giving you, when it comes into your mind, I surrender my right to be angry over what my husband did 10 years ago. My husband committed adultery 10 years ago. I've kind of kept that in my back pocket in case I had to, uh, in case he did it again. I uh, wouldn't want to want my heart to get broken again. Uh, we're forgiven, but uh, nothing's ever been quite the same since. So I'm going to keep that in my back pocket. You, you have to let that go and say, I'm not going to carry my failures and defeats. I'm not going to carry anybody else's failures and defeats. If my mistakes can't define me, I'm sure not going to let your mistakes define me. If my sins and transgressions can't define me, I don't want them to define me. I don't want my own perversion to define me. I am certainly not going to let yours define me. If I can't carry my own load of rocks, don't try and bring yours to me. Because I don't want to carry yours for me. So the things that you've said about me, the things you've said to me, the things that you've failed me, the areas where you're not what you're supposed to be, those are your issues. You're released. You're free because I'm not going to tote that around. I'm going to do my best to stay free, both of my judgments and everybody else's judgments against me. And you've got to go through life like that in your own family, in your own home. You've got to be able to come along and say, I make his soul an offering for my sin. And it says, 
in the middle clause there, he shall see his offspring, that's us, he shall, Jesus shall prolong his days, he shall prolong our days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his or our hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus, he shall see us and be satisfied. By his knowledge, or by our knowledge of him, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Righteous was used over in Second Peter, or First Peter. And it says, and he shall bear their iniquities. But here's the best part of it. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many or with the strong and shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, transgress- and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's two sides to that. The side that we've capitalized on tonight was the fact that he can bear our pains, our griefs, our sorrows, our sin, our sickness, and carry it all away. But he just didn't do that so you and I would feel better. He did that so that he could give gifts to the strong. And you have to be strong to do this portion of Scripture. To give gifts to the strong so you can rise up and share in his inheritance. So you can rise up and live a life of an anointing. So you can rise up and live a life of victory. So you can rise up so you don't go through life broken and defeated, always oppressed, always held back by circumstances or other people's will. But like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you can rise up and live in a place of victory to where the supernatural power of God doesn't just flow to you to make you better, but it flows through you to impact the lives of the many people that that God himself will bring in contact with. He's got gifts he wants to give you. He's got something he wants to put inside of you. If you don't see anything else, think of it like this. I have a heart, and in my heart, I have, I have a big heart. I have a five-liter capacity heart. I have a big heart. It's heavy. That's why I'm so big. It's a heavy heart. It's a big heart. Heavy. You've got to work. In this heart, I have one liter of love. That's a lot of love. But I have, I have a half a liter of jealousy. And I got, I got a half a liter of prophetic ministry. Well, I've got three-quarters of a liter of a teaching anointing. But I've got a liter and a half of anger and bitterness and jealousy. I've, I've got... I've got, I've got two liters. I'm overloading my capacity here. I've got two liters of rejection because I've been rejected and disappointed all my life. I've been told what I couldn't do. I've been told why it wouldn't work if I tried it. I've been told by well-meaning people who love me with all their heart, who thought they were spurring me on to good works, why I was so... if. You're, you're not really as stupid as you act like. If you just tried, you could make haste. They didn't understand that if they called me stupid, I would flunk on purpose. It was the only thing I'd do to get them back. So I've got two liters of rejection. And I go through life, and man, I go through life. And if you, if you turn your back on me, like when I walked up to say hi to you, if you turn your back on me, man, that stirs that stuff up in the bottom of my heart, that rejection stuff. I'm, I'm kind of making this up, I hope you know. <laughs> Part of it. 
That rejection stuff kind of circulates. And, oh, man, you know, it's like that briny pickle juice. It makes everything ugly and cloudy. It touches the love. It touches the gifting. It taints the prophecy. It taints the ability to teach. It makes, it makes, yeah, and you know who else I don't like either? And you know what else they did wrong to me? And they didn't give me no money. And they don't love me. And they don't like me. And nobody ever listens to me. Why, oh, why, Lord? And it just, you just stirs it up. And then after a while, you know, I pray a little bit. And it settles down a little bit. But I still got it in there. Jesus says, how about you just let me take all of the bad stuff out? So whereas you couldn't reach down into that heart, that container of liquid, and separate the vial from the precious, I can. So I can fill your heart to capacity with good. I can fill your heart to capacity with gifts. I can fill your heart to capacity with the love of God. I can fill your heart to capacity with with trust and with hope. I can fill your heart to capacity with with vision. Because I guarantee you, those those two leaders of rejection have stolen every piece of vision I could have ever had. Because my vision has all of a sudden been shortened and narrowed to how you treat me. I spend all my powers of creative vision trying to figure out why you don't like me and what I can do to get back at you. But if I take that out, maybe I can see farther than the front row. Maybe I can see farther than today. Maybe I can see something that's real and not just apparent. So when he says, I want to bear, I did bear, just acknowledge it like I acknowledged it, your sins and transgressions, those that are yours personally owned, those that have cut you right to the heart for when you've been misused, when you were lied to, when you were conned, tricked, and seduced. Right in the heart. I might be pretty, but I'm not very smart. I've been used. I'll never be the same again. Well, you know, now that that's happened, you can never be the same again. No, you can be better. You're right. You can't can't be the same again. You're right. You can't be tomorrow, can't be today. You're right. But you can be redeemed. You can be restored. You can be made whole. You can be not just healed and fixed up and propped back up and say, you know, we're really going to have to fix that foundation someday, but for now, let's just slap another coat of concrete on the outside of it, fix the cracks. You can be perfectly aligned, lifted up, whole, made right, filled with only good stuff. No anger. No, what happened to me in 1966? No betrayal. No rejection. No disappointments. I surrender my right to those things. So I can be filled up with the life and the love of God. So that I can go through my own life acknowledging that he bore 
my griefs and my sorrows, and that by a consequence of that, he took my sickness and my infirmity. I can feel good because I am good. I can feel healthy because I am whole. I can walk in freedom and joy and victory because I've been made whole. Stand up with me if you would. Lord, we give you thanks. We offer up a sacrifice of praise. We confess thanks unto your name. We've never had any trouble acknowledging that you bore the sins of the many. It's been a simple truth to us that you bore the sins of the world and that you bore our sins. But we've not always known what that meant, so right now, we give you the right to come into our heart and into our soul and take the transgressions, the iniquities of ourselves and those that have legitimately belonged to others that we've laid claim to, those that we've let impact us. Take those out of our heart. Take those out of our mind. The betrayals, the rejections, the harsh words, the disappointments, the impact and the effect of active sin. We, we release that to you. We release the pictures of it. We release the words that go to it. We release the feelings of it. And in doing so, we let you have our grief over the betrayals, over our disappointment, over whether they're real or whether they're perceived disappointment. You carry our griefs. You carry our sorrows. You carry our pain, you carry our sickness, and in return you give us life. You give us life, you give us gifts, you give us abilities, you refresh us, you renew us, you make us every bit whole. For this, Lord, we lift our voices to proclaim honor and thanks and glory and praise in worship and blessing to you. Thank God you've redeemed us. We thank you, Lord, that you've redeemed us. We thank you, Lord, that you've saved us. We thank you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. Say this with me. I'll, 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 be, I'll be finished with you from my part. I'll, I'll give you peace here. Say this with me before we go, though. Lord, I open up my heart. I unveil my soul, and I invite you to move into my heart, to move into my mind, and to remove all that defiles every word, every act that I've said and done contrary to your truth, every word, 
every act, I've endured contrary to your word. I surrender ownership. And I give these things to you. I ask you now to fill up my heart, to fill up my life with words of life, words of truth. Unveil your gifts you've given to me. Cause my mind and my heart to soar with the vision of your fullness, of your goodness, and your richness to me. I receive from you a new start, a new day, new opportunities, new gifts filled with life to give life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. He is good, is he not? He is good. He's a deliverer. He's a redeemer. And I thank you for your patience. I thank you for your time. I thank you for giving me a good heart and a good ear to listen to. Well, thank Praise you. the Lord. Thank you, Brother David. You're welcome. You know, before we go, um, and I really, you know, I believe that so much was said. There, there doesn't need to be much added to that. But I, I know as somebody who's listening, um, it was like a, you're, you know, where Jesus said, "You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free." There's times where you don't know there's that you're bound, and when you know, your eyes are open, and all of a sudden you have this, this hope I can be free. And it it sometimes seems to me that that we've we've all kind of, I mean this is this has been an interesting year for a lot of us, and and many of us have been able to say like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They tried to throw us in the furnace, but here we are, we're alive. The thing about them is they didn't even smell like smoke. And I really believe that that's God's best. Not that just you just survive, but that you don't even smell like smoke. That you can walk through it and uh, not carry that. It occurred to me just as we were saying that, actually, that those Hebrew children, Daniel especially, later became instrumental in Nebuchadnezzar's life the very man that sentenced them to the flames. And had they held on to their right to be angry, they wouldn't have done that. It seems to me that some of the, the sorrow and the, and the bitterness and, and all of this, and, and, and to, me, to be honest, the discouragement that we've faced, you know, you've, we've faced discouragement, you're in times of discouragement. Being discouraged when you're in a time of discouragement is kind of like trying to fix a leak by sawing it out instead of letting the leak be healed. So I say all this because I really believe that, that, that there was just healing. Just even then when you were singing in the spirit, there was, there was healing taking place. And I really believe that some of you are just on the edge of that. I think that really did a lot. I think some of you are still right on the edge where you're just ready to let things go. But your eyes are being opened. I remember when Jesus said, after he told the parable of the sower, he said this. He said that, that these folks, with their, with their eyes, they scarcely see, with their ears, they barely hear. Because, because their hearts have become dull. And it says because, because they've closed their eyes. But he said, here's what would happen. If their eyes were open, if their ears would hear, and if their hearts would understand, then they would turn and I would heal them. That's the promise. When our eyes are open, when our ears are open, when our heart is open, then we turn and we are healed. 
And I really believe, I just felt such healing even coming over myself that I don't want us to leave without everybody in this place being able to say, I walked out of here healed. No longer chained to my past because the past will do everything it can to sabotage the future. But no longer chained to that. And I used to, I came in smelling like smoke and now, now I know who I am. So just, just to, 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 to put a, I don't know, to, to some of us, because I, I even felt in my own, my own spirit that right then there was stuff that God was digging up that I didn't even know was there. And I'm ready to let it go. I'm just ready to be free. And I'm ready to just walk with no, uh, owing no man and no man owing me. I just owe them love. And my debts have been taken on by him. Anything I owed, he took. Anything I owed me, he took as well. We don't walk around with people owing us anything. So we're just going to be free.